What if I could put him in front of you? The man that ruined your life. If I could guarantee that you'd get away with it, would you kill him? Welcome to Kurosawa Worth Watching, where we're watching a Kurosawa film and then the films that it inspired. Today we're watching Predestination, the 2014 Ethan Hawke film, and we'll just have to see if we think it was inspired by Kurosawa. I'm your host, and this podcast is the result of me being kidnapped and going back into the past to create a baby podcaster, and well, it's really too complicated to explain how Guy and I turned out to be the same podcaster after all. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who really likes the song Baby Jane. Well, I like a song from Baby Jane. I've written a letter to Daddy saying I love you. <laughs> I'm not but sure I don't that think that's the, the what you're talking yeah, about. I, I, I'm not sure Rod Stewart <laughs> did that one. You know. <laughs> well, hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So... Boy, this film, uh, not, you know, actually, I think a really good thing about it is it's just whatever you expect. It's not that, right? <laughs> You're going to be surprised when you go into this film. Yeah, I didn't really have any uh, any pre uh, preconceptions or, or predestinations for <laughs> that matter. And uh, uh, it was definitely, definitely a pretty interesting movie. There's, um, yeah, there's stuff I could say both for and again it. So we'll get to that in time. Yeah. So uh, I actually, while I was watching the film the first time, I was like, you know, there was this Heinlein story. <laughs> it's like this. And it turned out at the end that, in fact, this story is based on a Heinlein story called All You Zombies. And uh, we'll talk about, you know, as we go through what that means. But I thought I would take the opportunity to say that, you know, Heinlein was a huge, huge influence on me as a child and a teenager. You know, I started out reading his juvenile science fiction. The very first adult book I ever read was one of his, The um, the Martian. Uh, oh, I meant to look up Stranger the in a Strange Land? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land uh, about, you know, the the human who was raised on Mars by Martians and comes back. And, and I was just expecting another juvenile Heinlein and I did not expect the sex and hippie stuff and you know <laughs> eating uh, you know cannibalism and all the it was like it hit it literally just hit me like a brick and I I spent several days kind of walking around in a daze after reading that book and huh. in a lot of ways I felt that well I did have a father Heinlein was my spiritual father because I got much <laughs> more guidance from his philosophy than I did from my own parents. Hmm. And now I have a set of leather bound acid free paper of all of his works. And I, and I bought that. So, so ah, this is my, and hopefully just, that was before they started, uh, bowdlerizing all the, uh, uh, re reprints of old books. Yeah. I don't think they got to Heinlein yet, but yeah, these would be the <laughs> originals. <laughs> Although he had to deal with that in his time. He was really disgusting because, you know, the editors would look at these things in these children's books he was writing and, it's, and they would essentially imply this is a penis, you know, this is whatever. And he's like, you have the dirtiest <laughs> mind, <laughs> which is always true, right? The censors always have the, the dirtiest minds. Uh, 
So anyway, full disclosure, I have this really intense relationship with Heinlein. I also eventually broke from him because as he was writing his adult works later in his life and he'd gotten famous and, you know, became a huge author, he was one of those authors who they stopped editing him, right? And every book got longer and it just – there was a point where it was actually the book of Job um, that he wrote where even as a teenager, I I was like, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I put it down and I stopped reading. <laughs> you know, but, but still, he had a huge, huge influence on me. Now, we chose this movie just because, you know, some – some Google search, some website said that it was influenced by Rashomon. Now, it's clearly a Heinlein story, but I looked it up, and he published this story nine years after Rashomon came out. So it's totally possible that he was influenced by Rashomon. So we shall have to see what we think when we get to the end of this. All right. I will say, as we'll see as we develop this, there are themes in here where you would think this movie had come out now it was sort of ahead of its time in a way for even though it's based on a you know very old short story uh it's also ahead of its time for for current uh, events <laughs> mm. hey with that we will head into the movie So we start out with a black screen, and we have narration from Ethan Hawke. Now, he's going to be called the barkeep. I just keep calling him Ethan Hawke. You know, this is one of those mm. highfalutin movies where nobody actually has a name, pretty much, and they'll have just like a description. Yeah, in my notes, I call him Bart because he's the bartender. So yeah. <laughs> Seems like a handy abbreviation. And he also gets called the violin man at certain points, so, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we hear him... We hear him saying, what if I could put him in front of you, the man that ruined your life? If I could guarantee that you'd get away with it, would you kill him? Then we're looking down on the floor of some kind of large, fancy building, and a man in a broad-rimmed hat and long overcoat passes, and he's carrying what looks originally like two briefcases, uh, or as we'll see as he goes along, one's a briefcase and one is a violin case. And his look is rather like Kaiser Soje from the beginning of Usual Suspects. <laughs> we watched that recently. That same sort of film noir, you know, broad brim hat and long coat. Right. So he goes through a door and goes down a staircase in the building. And then he enters a wide open room. And he goes up to a piece of furniture and takes off a covering. And it turns out there's some device under there. And it's ticking down, you know, the good old ticking bomb or whatever. <laughs> And he puts his briefcase on the floor on its side and then expands it in a weird way. I was trying to figure out what the geometry was to describe it. But, you know, basically turns it into a – it's not a triangle. It's four. It's well, kind of a rectangle, I guess. It's kind, of, it's kind of like a, a cylinder except it's yeah. square. And stuff. Yeah. So it's essentially a rectangle and cylinder form, right? And he then works to remove the core of the bomb that's tricking down. But as he's doing so – he hears something behind him, and he pulls out, uh, you know, really big revolver. So this isn't one of our, like, modern, you know, Glocks or whatever. This is a good old-fashioned revolver. And he's moving around the room looking for an enemy, and then someone shoots at him, and he shoots back. Meanwhile, the timer is almost to zero, so he rushes back and pulls out the bomb core and, and sticks it into the briefcase container. But before he can close the container, it goes off. So... He managed to keep the bomb from having its full effect, but the bomb, you know, engulfs him in flame 
and he's completely burned. I mean, his, his skin is yeah, literally the, on fire. The walls of the container hold, but and there might even be a lid that's on it part way. But but all that force comes out the narrow gap in the top of it, so and he gets it right in the face. Yeah, and we've never seen his face until until it's burning, so we don't really know what he looks like. Yeah, this movie uses a lot of convenient, uh, not seen faces <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, throughout it now. <laughs> so he probably should have died, but he didn't die. And he's screaming and he's on fire and he's reaching for that violin case, but he can't quite get to it. And then a man we, again, can't fully see because <laughs> we don't want to see anybody in this, walks up and slides the violin case to him and he opens the case and then he sort of vanishes. And next we see a person in a hospital bed with his head and arms totally bandaged, so presumably that person. He doesn't know how long he's been out. He's looking at his bandaged arms. He's very frustrated. You know, he pushes away a medical tray and breaks everything. Then a little while later, two men are standing over the bed, and they're awarding him the Blackmore Cross, and they say it's his second. We don't know what the Blackmore Cross is. The men say that his final order is going to come through shortly, and he asks about the bomber, and they say it's not his problem anymore. They remind him of the critical nature of his final order and say he needs to get rest. And we see him later sitting up on his bed, bandaged, looking over newspaper clippings on the wall, referencing the fizzle bomber. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, the thing not, throughout not, the, not the greatest name for it. Yeah, and they even criticize the name within the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, he sa- and then we get narration, presumably from him, Saying that the fizzle bomber is proficient and he's precise with his timing. And we get these different shots of, you know, bombed out locations. And so this time, you know, he managed to stop the fizzle bomber. That was the bomb that resulted in him getting burned. But he knows that he's going to do larger attacks in the future. And his grand plan is in March of 1975 in New York, he's going to do an explosion that's going to level 10 blocks and kill over 11,000 people. And we actually see pictures of that event. So we don't know why we can see those at this point, but we see the Mm. devastation he's going to cause to New York. And the bandaged man just wants more time to try and stop him. Then we see a doctor removing his bandages, and he, <laughs> yeah, it's again, one of those convenient movie things, as we'll see. He's like, well, this has entirely changed your appearance. You're not going to recognize yourself at all, <laughs> which is going <laughs> to be pretty relevant to the movie. And he actually looks, once the bandages are off, he's very Frankenstein's monster, right? He's got these huge, like, cracks in his head and, and, and such. And the doctor says he's logged more field hours than any other agent, and there are risks to doing that. And also, again, convenient, his vocal cords were damaged, so he's not going to sound the same. (laughs) And he goes to a mirror, and that's where we see the Frankenstein's monster. And he says, I've changed so much, I doubt my own mother would recognize me. And he chuckles, and (laughs) again, this... As have been the other Rashomon-inspired movies we've watched, including Rashomon itself... These are all movies that you benefit if you watch it more than once. And this is a line that's going to mean a lot more the second time you watch this movie. <laughs> so now we see presumably the same person, completely healed. And it has to be years later. I mean, he had, he had been so damaged. And now he looks totally like Ethan Hawke, right? So looks totally normal. His final order has just come through. 
and he's recording a message on audio tape. And uh, for the kids in the audience, audio tape, you know, well, again, Google it. (laughs) (laughs) And he's saying that by the time the person listening to this recording is hearing it, seven years will have passed. And we don't know seven years from what. At first, I thought it was seven years from when he got hurt in the bombing, but Lady realized that's not, not the case. And he says, our first mission is just as important as our last. Each one is getting us closer to our final destination. Maybe they should have called the movie Final Destination, but I think there's a, like, a horror <laughs> series that's kind of like that. Yeah. So the same men who gave him the medal now have him swear to uphold the rules set forth by TBR code 7286. And, you know, eventually we're going to find out the TBR stands for Time Bureau. Uh, I don't know what the R is, but. Any diversion from mission parameters will result in immediate court-martial and, if convicted, death by lethal injection. <laughs> he agrees to this. It's kind of like one of those when you go to a website and you got to click through. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and they give him an apparently special watch, and they give him a violin case. And he's still narrating, presumably into the recorder, and he ends the scene saying, we were born into this job. Which, again, will become much more meaningful if you watch the film a second time. <laughs> Then it's 1970, and we get the title of the film, although they don't run the credits here, so they just run the title of the film, they tell us what year it is, and the camera goes inside a bar, it's called Pop's Place, and Ethan Hawke is bartending, and a person comes in, and Hawke looks at his special watch, and it has this big label that says 1970 on it, as well as, as the date and the time, and a couple of people sitting at the bar refer to the person coming in as a freak. And this person's face is in shadow, and they order an old underwear. Now, I, I didn't look this up. I don't know if you know, is old underwear a, a drink? <laughs> the only thing I could think of is uh, there's a rye whiskey called Old Overholt, and I've heard that called <laughs> Old Overcoat, uh, but I don't think I'm familiar with old underwear. Yeah, well, maybe a bartender in our audience will <laughs> let us know. <laughs> And so after ordering the drink, this person says to leave the bottle, which tells us something a little bit about them. And then they leave forward, and we see a somewhat effeminate-looking man. I guess something we discussed we go through. I feel like – I don't feel like they totally pulled this off. Maybe they weren't trying to. It didn't – you know. But it also relates to the people calling this person a freak, right? Because you have someone who kind of looks like a woman, kind of looks like a man. Yeah, I uh, – this is – um. You know, I guess we may as well go ahead with the spoilers since we've had a few already. I mean, this is this is a woman playing the role, and I once once I got to see her face, I thought oh, that's a that's a woman. I thought it might be kind of like a you know a, a woman who eschewed uh, a lot of feminine ornamentation. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, to be honest, having lived in San Francisco for like twenty five years, this is what we call a butch lesbian, right? This is exactly yeah. What someone like that who would identify as that would would be. And I don't know what they were trying for. I don't know if they were trying to have her really look like a man, but this is what they got to. And it's okay. It's just not, you know, I think the the story would have worked a little better if she actually looked like a man at this point. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that in some scenes the illusion comes close, but then in other scenes it doesn't really work very well at all. So uh yeah, it's the movie's a little bit compromised off the bat because you already have that little suspicion that something 
But the, uh, somebody now, I will say that that has nothing to do with her performance, right? Her performance is fine. Oh, no, if they could have just got her looking more like a man, it would have been would have been helpful. But but her performance yeah. is good. So this person says to Ethan Hawke, "You're new here," and Ethan Hawke says he's been here for a couple of weeks. And apparently, he says it's been very slow. Customers have been staying home because of the fizzle bomber, which. It kind of reminds me, and I, I assume they were I, – I did not go back and reread the Heinlein story, which I haven't read for decades, you know, since I was a teenager. But I assume with the Fizzle Bomber, they were bringing in uh, the Unabomber or Unabomber, as we call them, right? Because that that hmm. sort of thing happened there, right, where people were scared and changing their behavior hmm. because they were they were worried about him. So these two chat for a bit, and Ethan Hawke says he hasn't seen this person around. They come here often, and he gives kind of a weird response. You know, she she slash he says, "What are you a faggot?" Which is <laughs> just, just <laughs> kind of bizarre. So it's, yeah, I think that's that does at least uh, clear clear mm-hmm. up the question of whether you're supposed to believe this person is a man or a woman who's right. dressed. I agree, as a man. and I, I think that's the purpose of the line is to make it clear it's supposed to be a man. Yep. And uh, he then asked Ethan Hawke to tell a joke because all bartenders must have jokes. And Ethan Hawke eventually comes up with, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And the customer says the rooster, which ruins his jokes. <laughs> Apparently that was it. But also this will <laughs> become important later <laughs> in the story, or at least, you know, relates to everything. And while it's a joke, Hawke asks the customer seriously if he's considered this question, you know, which comes first. And they then have some bartender client discussion. And it turns out that the customer writes for true confessions magazines, you know, so especially what back in the fifties, sixties, et cetera, uh, last century, you had these crime magazines. Now you have true crime podcasts, right? <laughs> but back then you had these <laughs> true crime magazines where you could read the salacious details of, of all these things. And this person writes for them under the byline an unmarried mother. And it happens that Hawk has read her. He reads these stories and he's read her and uh, read him, him, her. This is going to be really tough throughout this whole thing. Uh, Hawk has read him and is familiar with him and likes his story. And he says, in particular, you have a real insight into the feminine mind. The customer says it's an incredible story why that is. And he gets Hawk to agree to give him a free bottle of booze if it's the most incredible story he's ever heard. So, like some movies and stories, much of this movie is is the process of this conversation right here, right? Where the customer is telling Ethan Hawke the story of his life. Mm. But before we get to that story, there's something on the TV about the Fizzle Bomber. And the customer says, you know, it's a silly name. Fizzle implies that the bombs fizzle, but they actually do go off. And, and Ethan Hawke points out that he's killed 112 people so far. But then they get to the story, and the customer begins, when I was a little girl, which shocks Ethan Hawke, but doesn't really shock us. <laughs> so, <laughs> but at least we got pretty early on to this, and they have a little bit of discussion of some of the famous people, you know, before all the kind of modern stuff, some of the famous people who changed sex. And it actually goes back a long time that, that people were doing this. They mentioned a Christine Jorgensen, and I'm not sure, but I think that that case may have been uh, what one of Ed Wood's movies was loosely based on. Ah, uh, yeah, he I'm did. I'm not sure. 
Oh, Glenn or Glenda? Yeah, Glenn or Glenda. Yeah, that was it. That might have been it. Yeah, and and Ed Wood, I think, was a was a crossdresser. So the customer begins to tell the story, and on September sixteenth, nineteen forty-five, she was a foundling left on an orphanage doorstep, and you know, she's saying this. We see a guy in a brimmed hat and gloves, very similar to what we saw earlier, uh, delivering a baby to the orphanage, and then calling the orphanage. And a woman at the orphanage gets the call, finds the baby, and has a doctor come in to check the baby out. And it's just this weird little very tiny subplot in here. Like, she clearly flirts with the doctor, and this actually has Mm. a payoff later on. (laughs) Yeah. And the woman names the baby Jane, which is, you know, not very original, but okay. Yeah, she's a Jane Doe. Yeah. And as an infant, Jane... You know, in her crib has a planetary, uh, what do they call the? Um, mobile? Yeah, mobile swinging over her bed, and she's fascinated by it. And this transitions into her as a young girl reading the magazine Space Adventurer. So this was, uh, now she's, you know, in 45, and I was born in like 68. But nonetheless, this is what I was doing. <laughs> this is what I was reading at recess mm-hmm. at school, so I appreciate it. I was reading Richie Rich. <laughs> And Jane reads while everyone else is playing, and she's, you know, leaning against the fence. And then through the fence, she sees a mother buying ice cream for her child, and she's envious because she doesn't have parents. And she goes through the fence toward them, and she's so oblivious that she walks right across the street, and a car shrieks to a halt after almost hitting her. And she gets mad, and she punches out the headlight of the car. I think this is to show that she has male components and that she's angry and all that. And that's all going to play into the film. But I'm going to say BS, like a 10 year old girl or whatever, punching out the headlight, especially of a 19, you know, fifties car. I mean, those, that was like, you know, half inch thick glass, right? I mean, she would have busted her hand before she, yeah, they uh, were tough headlights. Yeah. <laughs> then as a somewhat older young girl, she knows something is different about her. She's walking around at night, and she comes across that doctor and the and the woman who brought her into the orphanage having sex. So we have a little bit of payoff from that that flirting. <laughs> and she she in the narration she says sex confuses her. She doesn't ha- understand how things fit. She felt different, you know. She knew she'd be different from all the other girls. Then she says she vowed that if she had a kid, it would have a mom and a dad. Which, uh, well, we'll see how that turns out. But meanwhile, she learns how to fight, and we see her, you know, in an extended fight with a, a girl, and then she knocks out a boy, so she's, you know, very physical. But also, she's very smart, top of her class. And I'm going to – this goes back to Heinlein, right? All of Heinlein's protagonists and main characters were incredibly smart, incredibly physical, incredibly good-looking. <laughs> it was just a very <laughs> – you know, that was kind of the way he worked. And as she grows up in the orphanage, she realizes that she's not going to be adopted. She's not the kind of person that people want to adopt. Then we see her graduating, and uh, we see for the first time Mr. Robinson. This kind of a thin, you know, cigarette-smoking guy who's going to come back several times in the story. Pencil mustache, that's an important part. So she's graduating. He approaches her for a government career in space travel. Now, this is an interesting thing again about Heinlein and then about this movie. Which is Heinlein in, you know, the 50s, 60s, et cetera, was mixing the concept of, say, working on a farm and then going into space, right? Like, space was very much a part of things. But if you're watching this movie, 
and at first everything's kind of normal, right? Like there's a bar in 1970 and, and all this. The idea that there's space travel and everything is, is really kind of jarring, right? <laughs> there's nothing in the movie mm. before this that communicates that we're in this other timeline where where we have, you know, space travel early on and, and all this sort of thing. Well, I don't know. By, by this time, she's graduating, so this would be early 60s. So by then, they already had the space programs that were sending capsules of you know, Well, that's or, true, but, I mean, these... This story, this timeline is way ahead of all that, right? And what they're doing. Um, they're sending people be. off into space and I didn't I didn't get that impression. I thought I thought they were just wanting these women for the uh you know, the programs like the you know, three guys in a capsule type thing. But I could you know Well, not, I mean know. They are, as we'll see, they're recruiting these women to go on long-term space uh, trips in order to essentially be girlfriends to the astronauts. So, I mean, you know, it's it's not exactly what we were doing back then. <laughs> yeah, that um, we know of, anyway. Yeah. So, the weird thing is they want women who have strong skills in math and science and have strong physical strength. But <laughs> as we're going to basically see, what they really want is just, as I mentioned, the women to be girlfriend to the astronauts once they're in space, right? And then she mentions, you know, after a certain period of time, the men wouldn't be able to deal with, deal with the tension and, and all this. So she's applying with many other women, although a lot of them are just like, you know, hookers and stuff, so she knows they're not going to make it. <laughs> they do prefer virgins so they can train them from scratch. And one of the things we learn is that, you know, they don't get into detail on this, but part of their training is clearly some kind of sex training. Mm-hmm. And she gets this extensive interview with a bunch of men with, you know, a bunch of insulting questions like, you're not a women's lib type, right? <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then she goes through a training regimen and she gets the highest test numbers they've ever seen. Again, very Heinlein. Uh, then she's getting a psych exam and she says she feels like she's living in someone else's body, but she doesn't know how to describe it. One of the other things I'll say in all this since we've already introduced it is one of the odd things about Heinlein is that he was a military guy who wrote a lot of very conservative and or what you you know might call fascistic fiction and ideas. But he also, he and his wife had an open marriage. And he, in stories like this and, you know, in his adult books, explored very seriously the idea of people changing sex and having, you know, polyamorous relationships and all that. So, so he was uh, very on the edge when it came to a lot of the sexual morals and, and such, even though in a military kind of sense and a government kind of sense, he was probably a more, more conservative kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So she then gets in a fight again and we have another kind of extended fight this time. You know, last time we saw it, she was a little girl. Now it's with, you know, women who are probably 20 or something. And they have a pretty serious fight and she takes damage and the other person takes damage and it results in her getting a detailed physical exam where they find something that disqualifies her from the program. She doesn't know what, about this, but you know, the doctor who examined her is talking to Mr. Robertson, the guy who brought her in and Mr. Robertson says he'll tell her, but he doesn't tell her the truth. He says that she's being expelled because of the fight and he says he's going to work to get her back in, but whatever the physical thing that, you know, disqualified her, he, he's not going to reveal. Hmm. So meanwhile, she has menial jobs, you know, she's a fry cook, that sort of thing. And 
this is when she discovers confession stories. So she works during the day. She takes classes at night, including a charm class where, you know, she's learning how to put the forks on the plates and everything. This is the first class she's ever had that she doesn't do well in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's figuring all this out. And then she meets him, you know, the guy of her dreams. So on a rainy night, she's leaving class and she bumps into this guy. We can't see or hear who this person is. As I said, that's how this movie works. We have this little line. I'm not familiar with this quote, but after she bumps into him for some reason, she says, you know what happens to those who wait? Well, you know what they say about good things happening to those who wait? But only the things left behind by those who hustle, he said. And it turns out that this is a quote from Lincoln, and she had been thinking that when she said her part, and so she's amazed when this other person completes the quote. Turns out this guy is handsome and rich and treated her with kindness, and they quickly fall in love, and it's the happiest time of her life. But it doesn't last very long. One night, they're sitting on a bench in a park, and he leaves her for a few moments, tells her to stay there, says he'll be back, but he never comes back. Hmm. And she's very angry about this. And she was now more eager than ever to join Space Corps. Uh, But, you know, they reject her. And then Mr. Robertson shows up at her house and tells her that he actually works for an organization whose primary purpose is not space travel, but reshaping wrongdoings. And this organization uses Space Corps, among others, to recruit people. And they look for people with special abilities who have no husbands, no wives, no children, no past. The best and the brightest, the elite. It's a lot of requirements. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't know what the job actually is, but she's excited about it. And However, she then realizes she's pregnant from her mystery man. So she doesn't get the job and Mr. Robertson disappears. Apparently being pregnant was, you know, not one of the things you were allowed to, to be for this. And she ends up in the hospital, I guess in part because now you have a child, which means that you have connections to the world. She ends up in a hospital having the baby, and when she wakes up, she's told by a doctor that she had a cesarean, and there was a girl baby, and in the process, they discovered that she had two sets of sexual organs, and due to the complicated pregnancy, her female parts were no good anymore, so they reshaped things to turn her into a male, you know, obviously without asking her or anything. (laughs) Yeah, this really, uh, this, this really gave me pause for thought, because... You know, they say they give her a hysterectomy, and I know women can survive after a hysterectomy for a long time. They didn't, as far as what they explain, there's no reason that they needed to turn her into a male. I mean, the proper thing would have been to wake her up and say, so uh, here's an option, because you've (laughs) got some uh, hidden male parts, Uh, but uh, they they just just tell her, oh, while you were out, we decided to... uh, Make a few changes. Yeah, and I think <laughs> this this ties into something that was sort of true in the 50s and 60s and stuff, right? Where doctors were sort of treated as gods and they made decisions for you. And they would do this sort of thing, right? And they would do things like mm. if you had a terminal illness, they might not tell you. Mm. They might tell your family but not you to, you know, protect you from it or whatever. And there was all this kind of stuff like that back then. And you can kind of tell here, like, he was excited – to do this surgery to change her sex, right? So he kind of just mm. made that decision because it was cool for him to do. And I, and I think that does fit into where things were medically then. Where now, I mean, at least my opinion is, you know, the doctor works for you, right? They give you information. You decide what you are or aren't going to do. They don't decide that for you. 
Yeah. Of course, uh, it's possible that Mr. Robertson had a hand in all this. That's true. Yep. He does say she's going to need several further surgeries. She then names the baby Jane, you know, after her. (laughs) And she's dedicated to the baby. But two weeks later, the baby is snatched from the nursery. It's done by an older man. And we just see a man with gloves and a trench coat. So rather similar to some of the look we've seen earlier, go in and take the baby. She undergoes the further surgery. She starts taking testosterone and she starts practicing talking like a man. This movie is 2014, so they probably didn't know about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But the whole scene here where she's practicing talking like a man and changing her voice is exactly what Elizabeth Holmes did. You know, she changed her voice to be more masculine and it's it's basically exactly mm. the same as this. It's kind of interesting to watch when you when you're aware of that. Yeah. Now, was there like some movie about Elizabeth Holmes? Oh, God, or? I'll have to introduce you to that. Uh, yeah, I've done. Uh, there's an incredible book about it and a bad documentary and a good TV series about it. You know, this is where they were. The idea was that they were going to be able to do hundreds of tests from a couple drops of blood, hmm. especially so that people who had serious illnesses didn't have to get their blood taken all the time and which is a huge deal to people going through that right they get so tired of getting stuck and having the blood all taken out and everything it was all a fraud and uh, she's now the the court cases have occurred recently and she's going to jail for you know 20 years or something Mm -hmm. but she was the she was like in her 20s um the most successful billionaire in the world because of, of this so it was a big deal so yeah, uh, I remember there was some. I, I mean, I remember hearing that she was involved in some kind of uh, some kind of scandal where uh, they didn't make good on the technological stuff they were promising. Yeah, what yeah. they would actually do is is the blood samples would be sent to them, and in, often instead of using their device, they would just use a commercial device. Except because uh. they were only taking a few drops of blood they would have to water it down. So the results were inaccurate and they were giving people inaccurate uh, results. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's worth, uh, you know, looking into watching. Um, uh, John Kerry Rue wrote the book. It's a, it's a fascinating story for anyone who doesn't know about it. Anyway, so yeah, that's one of the things she did is she she started talking in a very husky voice, which she was clearly faking. <laughs> we talked to our lab team and they said, okay, you can do... The draw, and so they did this. What would have been a finger stick on this little nub? On over the last eleven years, we've reinvented the traditional laboratory infrastructure. So we now see that this woman slash guy is the guy we've been seeing throughout the movie, the bar customer, and she's she slash he is standing in a restroom and we see a full nude shot of her male member and all. And then she gets this great satisfaction out of peeing standing up, which Heinlein kept coming back to in his stories. He was just obsessed with the <laughs> idea that women really wanted to pee standing up. Now, I don't know how true this is or not, but I just found it kind of amusing. <laughs> well, it does give you a certain freedom, you yeah. know, write your name in the snow and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. He now says, every time I looked at my new appearance, I was reminded of that bastard who ruined my life. I was like, hmm, wonder what that's about. Uh, the nurses thought he was quite handsome, and also he knew what women wanted to hear, so apparently he did fine in that department now. And then just this morning, the morning that he's telling this story to the barkeep, 
He's found out that he's no longer shooting blanks. He's a fully fertile male specimen. Could turn out to be important. <laughs> yeah. And also, he says he feels people get what they deserve, which I think is kind of a a reference to the fizzle bomber and people dying and sort of saying, well, they were probably bad people anyway, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's also meant to make you wonder, is, is, uh, is she the fizzle bomber? Yeah. But, you know, it all comes back to hating the bastard who ruined her his life. That person deserves to die. Then he tried re-enlisting in Space Corps, this time as an astronaut, since he was a male. But, um, you know, they had his full medical history, so, of course, he was rejected. And then Ethan Hawke sort of does something surprising for a barkeep listening to a story, right? And he says, and this is what we heard in the very beginning of the film, if you could kill this person, you know, who hurt you, would you do it? And she's like, ah, maybe. And then she gets, she, he gets back to the story. He changed his name and came to New York. And uh, I said this earlier, so I was sort of, you know, jumping ahead. Became a fry cook, um, bought a typewriter, became a stenographer, and didn't get much business from that. But one of the things that he typed up became published. And since that was a bad story, he figured he could do better. So he decided to give it a try. And found it easy to write confession stories and became the unmarried mother. And now says, you know, Ethan Hawke must understand why he has this insight into the women's angle. And he wants to know if he wins the bottle for best story. And Ethan Hawke says, not bad, and goes to get the bottle. Mm -hmm. And there we go into the second half of this very convoluted story. <laughs> <laughs> So John, formerly Jane, says the man who ruined her life and her daughter are both ghosts now. Not literally ghosts necessarily, but uh, they're not in her life anymore. And the bartender, who I put in my notes as Bart, uh, he says, what if I can put him in front of you? Guarantee you'd get away with it. Would you kill him? And Jane says, in a heartbeat. And Bart reveals that he knows a lot about her or him. Uh, he knows the name of the lady at the orphanage, for example, who, who took her in and gave her the name Jane. Jane's initially annoyed, like like this guy knew about her all along and didn't let on. But after she gets over her annoyance, she's interested. But Bart wants something in return for setting her up with a rematch with the, the guy who broke her heart. Mm -hmm. In return, she'll, after she's done, gotten her revenge, she'll try his job, which is not bartending. <laughs> he reveals that he works with Mr. Robertson. Mm -hmm. So they go down to the bar basement, uh, and as they're, as they're leaving the bar, or the main room of the bar, uh, he gets a guy, another guy to come in and cover for him. A guy starts playing a song on the jukebox called I'm My Own Grandpa, which uh, which I first heard from the movie The Stupids with uh, with Tom Arnold, I believe, was in it. But it's a it's a sort of a novelty song from way way back about how through a convoluted series of 
uh, intermarriages or divorces or deaths or this, that, and the other thing, uh, somebody ends up becoming his own grandpa. Uh, this um, song was referenced in the Heinlein story, so I assumed that he was making it up, but maybe he was actually referring to an actual song. Okay. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, this. At least this is a a real song, and this it has the same tune as the one from the Stupids. <laughs> so it's uh, it's been around a while, I think. This little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle. Though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother of the winner's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. I'm my own grandpa. Sing with me if you want to. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. So as they're walking down the steps to the basement, uh, it's dark down below, and the steps look kind of ominous. They pause, you know, and, and you know, it, this guy could be very well leading her down to the basement to strangle her or mm. something. We don't know. So they pause on the steps, and each of them suggests that the other might be the fizzle bomber. They finally get down the steps and into the basement room, and then Bart locks them in uh, with a pretty big... Uh, Big lock on the door. Yeah, so it's not that, a very polite way to go problem. about it because I, I think any <laughs> person, especially woman, would assume they're now going to be assaulted when somebody does that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, just making it more ominous here. But then he shows her a violin case and he explains to her that it's a time <laughs> machine. He sets the dials on it to April 1963. He tells her that she'll need to be within three feet of the case when they activate it. And he prepares two guns. He activates the case once they're close enough together. And they vanish very suddenly. And they appear in a sunlit room in Cleveland. <laughs> She's nauseated from the jump. This is, uh, this is, I guess, her first, her first jump. And uh, so she's not accustomed right. to it at and all. And of course, it's amusing to me because I now live in Cleveland and you live near Cleveland. So <laughs> 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 yeah. And uh, Bart tells her that the Bureau's headquarters is, is not here. It's in 1985. But this mostly empty room is already stocked with bags of the clothes that they're going to need. He tells her that the limit of time travel is plus or minus 53 years of zero point, which is the date of the invention of time travel, which was 1981. So you can go back 53 or forward 53 years from that. He gives her one of the guns that he prepared earlier. Tells her if she kills the man who ruined her life, he'll take her to Robertson. He tells her the man she wants is at Cleveland College. <laughs> and uh, I had never heard of Cleveland College, so I looked it up, and uh, there isn't one, as I thought, although there apparently was one. I couldn't find a lot of information on it, but it, it may have merged with Western Reserve University around 1953 or... Uh, it's it's hard to tell. I just found like one caption on a single photograph that suggested that it merged with Western <laughs> Reserve. So, at any rate, Cleveland College is fictitious in uh, in this era. I have been told by someone who had a disease and gets um, studied here that the Cleveland Medical University, whatever it's called, uh, is one of the best uh, in the world. So there's that. Hmm. <laughs> could be. Could be. And the, the Cleveland Clinic is supposed to be pretty good. Too. Yeah, I think that that's probably uh, what it is, yeah. 
It's supposed to be like on a level of, you know, your Johns Hopkins yep. and Mayo Clinic and all the big fancy schmancy hospitals out there. So the, the man she wants is at a Cleveland college. She asks if she has a choice. He says, of course, you always have a choice, although we may, uh, we may see that's not always entirely the case <laughs> uh, as the movie goes on. But she asks if the job is lonely, and he admits that it is, uh, but he says, but you do have a purpose. And that was something that she had uh, expressed an interest in. So then we hear a bell ring you know, to mark the end of classes, and young Jane uh, emerges from the building into the rain. We, this is the start of the scene that we've seen before, although it's filmed with some different details this time. John, or future Jane, as the man Jane, is in a fedora and trench coat, waiting with a gun for the man who broke his heart, and Jane bumps into him from behind, and she makes a remark about uh, good things happen. Uh, but now John realizes that he was the man all along. <laughs> Don't we and, all always realize that? <laughs> <laughs> and I only realized this really in the second viewing. The first viewing, it just sort of, you know, faintly, faintly, you know, it was like, I had a little twinge. I should think more about that. And I was like, nah, screw it. <laughs> uh, but on the second viewing, I realized that she was crazy about this man. He ruined her life by leaving. She got a sex change, and she never realized that she was the spitting image of this man <laughs> that she was in love with. And well, she you did, mentioned that yeah, she, she had had that. that remark earlier about yeah. uh, every time she looked in a mirror, it reminded her of the man who'd broken her heart or whatever but uh, but still um that seems like it'd be a hard thing to forget i mean yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah there's just some so, things you got to go with and here you go yeah so bart bart's watching from a nearby corner and after a moment he does another jump this time to march 2nd 1970 just five days before arguably the most significant event in human history, uh, which was the date I was born. <laughs> Wait, so I'm like two years older than you? I thought we were basically the same age. I mean, we were close to the same age. But... Uh, no, March 7th. That's okay. the, the big day. <laughs> so you'd be 68, I yep. guess? Yep. Oh, okay. So now it's the scene where, uh, where he got his face messed up in the big bomb blast. Uh, but he's a few minutes early. Uh, this this scene starts before the last time we saw it. Um, the bomber's still in the act of setting up the bomb, and uh, they have an inconclusive shootout. They fire at each other somewhat, and then they go scattering off into the boiler room. Bart looks around. The bomber gets the drop on him and disarms him, puts a gun to his head. He dodges his head out of the way of the gun, and they fight a little. Finally, the bomber knocks him out, but instead of killing him, the bomber just leaves him lying there. Bart comes to pretty quickly. He's only out for seconds. And he hears shooting, and then he hears an explosion. He arrives just as the old him is getting a face melting. Mm. Uh, so it's the same scene we saw before, but now, now we see that the other guy who helpfully slid the violin case towards, uh, towards the old him is actually current day him with hmm. a new face hmm. so so he does that he slides the case over to his old self 
His old self uses the case promptly and vanishes, jumps off to get medical assistance. So the the older version of him is still here in the basement. He recovers a circuit from the debris of the bomb, and he jumps to 1964, where he has a really crappy hotel room. He's angry because, once again, he's failed to thwart the bomber. Mm-hmm. Uh, he smashes a few things in the room with a chair, and we, we see the clippings of the bomber's various crimes. Yeah, I think our impression is that this place in 1964 is kind of his home base. It's where he goes when he's not actually doing a mission or whatever. Hmm, could be. He, he has, he's got a few different places that he seems to have, you know, his safe houses, but uh, this could very well be his, his base because he does does come back here a couple times. Meanwhile, uh, during the next few minutes, we're going to jump back and forth a lot between uh, John and Jane having dinner and Bart. In his room, Bart is dictating to a tape recorder. He's leaving some helpful tips for time cops. And then we go back to John and Jane at dinner and... Uh, they both, it turns out, think that they're superior to everybody else, which uh, comes into play probably in the uh, in the line that comes up later, the all you zombies. Mm-hmm. They're both simpatico and feeling superior to everyone. John gives a little demonstration of mind reading, but it's not terribly convincing because the stuff that he says sounds like it could just be generic. Horoscope. Well, lines. but she's very impressed because he is saying what she's thinking because he used to be her, so he knows <laughs> what she's thinking. Yeah. yeah, but but his answers are correct, and they yeah. do have some specificity. You know, he mentions that she's not. You know, she doesn't think the charm school is helping her much, and you know, a couple things that. Yeah, they they reveal some some things, but they're not real showstoppers. They could just be a talented cold reader might come up with them and. You know, of course, if he got it wrong, then he'd just backpedal and do some diversion to another mm-hmm. another item. But anyway, Jane acts mostly unimpressed, but somehow she feels like they've met before. And while they're having dinner, now we see that Bart is in a dark hospital late at night, and Mr. Robertson arrives. He's made a rare jump. He was He was retired from the jumping business, but mm-hmm. he's making an exception to come see Bart, who hands over the circuit that he retrieved from the bomb. Robertson points out that he made an illegal jump, and uh, aside from the consequences, or the, the the legal penalties of that are very severe, which means basically you get the axe, uh, and uh, not just fired, I mean you get uh, dead. dead. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Robertson doesn't seem to be planning to do that in this case. He does warn that psychosis and dementia can be the consequence of making too many jumps. He goes on to talk about the importance of the Bureau's rules. Uh, it sounds like he's scolding Bart at first, but but then he says that he also sympathizes, and he often thinks of how much more could be done outside the rules. So Robertson seems to be sort of, uh, you know, egging him on. He's not, doesn't seem to be planning to, to punish him. Yeah, I mean, I think it was here, maybe later, but I think it was here where he said it'd be interesting to have an agent who is just doing whatever needs to be done, right? Hmm. And Robertson speaks of the way it has to be and the way it's always been, which prompts Bart to mention the snake that eats its own tail forever and ever. 
And this this is a reference to Ouroboros, which is an occult symbol. And Friedrich Nietzsche also used it to represent the eternal recurrence. And at least I'm thinking it was Thus Spake Zarathustra, but one of his books anyway, he brings the Ouroboros in there to represent his idea that, uh, you know, hope you like your life because you're going to live it again and again and again. So this snake is also, uh, the snake eating its own tail is, is also an example of uh, the overarching story of the, the movie, um, mm. the big old, big old time loop, which becomes more, more evident the more you see of the movie. So Robertson says to Bart, before he takes off, he says, you're more than an agent. You're a gift. You were given to the world through predestination paradox, the only one free from history as history. <laughs> so Bart's awful special. And uh, Robertson leaves, and now we see that it was Bart who stole Jane's baby. Uh, right, so it's at this point he goes in and steals the baby, yeah. And while he's doing that, we see that uh, in uh, 1963, Jane and John are in a car now, making out, mm. and uh, we can imagine where that's going to lead. <laughs> so Bart does another violin case jump with the baby. Uh, he's very careful to cover the baby's eyes. You know, a, a jump of 20 years' time can be pretty strong, and it'll hit a, hit a baby especially hard. So he, he takes what precautions he can. He jumps with the baby from his lousy 1964 hmm. hotel room to a nice hotel in 1945. There, he drops the baby off at the orphanage, and then he jumps to June 1963, which is two months after he dropped off John there. So he waits on a park bench on a lawn overlooking a lower area of the park uh, where John and Jane are sitting. And this, again, is a scene that we've seen where uh, uh, John gets up and says, uh, I'll be back, hmm. and uh, walks off. John had seen Bart sitting up on that higher level. So he walks up to Bart, pulls the gun on him, calls him a sick fuck. Bart argues that some events can't be changed. But he has some consolation. He says, the path you're on will take you to your destination, which uh, is kind of tautological, but, uh, you know, it seems to eventually persuade John that this is all necessary and has to be done. Yeah, and he also says here, now you know who she was and who you are, and maybe now you're prepared to know who I am, which is, you know... <laughs> Yeah, a little bit of it, actually. Yeah. Anyone paying attention to the movie is probably not going to be surprised at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've probably. Uh, I, I think, I think by this point in the movie, I had had a pretty good guess about the general, uh, the general situation. Although I hadn't really bothered trying to think out all the details because I figured the movie would <laughs> reveal it when I was good and ready, and it did. <laughs> So they jump to Bureau Headquarters, and there's a red LED clock that's very similar to the one that's in the in the car in Back to the Future, <laughs> except a lot larger. But it says August 12th, 1985, and I looked it up, and Back to the Future is October 26th. So it's not some kind of homage. It's just a handy sign. <laughs> Although it could also be intended as a homage, because, uh, I mean, this is a time travel movie, so... Yeah. You never know. 
So Robertson and Bart watched John sleeping uh, in a new clean bed in the uh, in the bureau headquarters, and they discussed the uh, fizzle bomber. And Robertson says that uh, whatever else the fizzle bomber has done, uh, he's at least done some good by making Bart a better agent. I don't know if it's here later, but he also says basically we were able to build the agency because of the fizzle bomber, right? Mm, yeah, I think that might also be in this. I was I was trying to uh, to edit things down uh, as much as possible, and I may have edited <laughs> yeah, a little there's, too There's a lot of plot in this movie. So, <laughs> so now Bart uh, Robertson says, Bart has one final mission. Uh, it's based on leads from the bomber's timer that uh, Bart had turned in earlier. Uh, and he says, when Bart arrives at his final destination, the violin case is going to decommission. He'll have a non-functional time machine. Yeah, apparently this but, is standard process, right? You always have this final mission, and once you get to your final mission, you're not going to be able to time travel anymore. Yeah. Right. So now we're uh, we're back at the bar, and... I'm my own grandpa is playing again on the jukebox in case we didn't uh, <laughs> see the significance of it the first time. So Bart makes his very last jump to a nice apartment in January 1975. Or he thinks it's his very last jump. Because he starts drinking, I think it's scotch, he toasts the violin case, and he watches the dials as they rotate to say, decommission whereas before they had said the, uh, the exact date they were going to. Uh, but then after a moment, the dials rotate again, and now they say fail, error, fail. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe it's not decommissioned after all. Bart opens the envelope that Robertson gave him, and it's an invoice for bomb parts with a note from Robertson, trace the purchase order. Mm. Um so this may be another chance to catch that darn bomber. Uh, in the headquarters, we see that John is in a nice suit, probably in 1985, uh, listening to the tape that, uh, that Bart recorded. Then we see Bart in a curio shop in 1975. He's testing out an old typewriter. He says to the clerk that he, uh, he writes confession stories but she speculates he should be writing adventure and murder stories. In his apartment, Bart types up a manuscript, and on the cover page it says, By John Doe. Uh, so that kind of makes us think that he's probably the guy who we've already met as John. The implication here, by the way, is that he spent a long time, you know, he wrote like a whole book or something, right? So it's probably been months uh, that he's been working on this. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he considers what's in the envelope some more. There's a photo of the bomber. The bomber's face is hidden, but there's a photo, and the bomber's going to show up at a laundromat. They have an actual certain time when he's going to be in a certain place. And now we get a sort of voiceover of various lines from the movie, and I seem to remember, I, don't, I think it was us, we, we saw some other movie that had a recent thing like this where, you know, they just sort of, these ghostly voices come back with all these significant lines that were full of portent, but you didn't necessarily <laughs> realize it when you first heard the line. And there's a line that I think is new. I don't think we've heard this line in the movie before. 
that says, I know where I come from, but where do you, where do all you zombies come from? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think he's he's talking about everyone who isn't Jane slash John slash mm-hmm. Bart. But of course, uh, really, it's them putting in the Heinlein story title into the movies. Yeah. So we get to a laundromat. It's late at night. The bomber's in there reading a confessions magazine, of course. He's looking kind of twitchy and ratty. And really, he doesn't even, to me, he doesn't look recognizable as any of the people, not even uh, not hmm. even Bart. He, he, he looks just... Just different enough that I wouldn't have recognized him. Mm. You know, he's got all these, uh, his but, teeth are yellow. He, he and he's is got a old Ethan Hawke. I mean. <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for yeah. it. I mean, that's obviously what the, the story is presenting anyhow. But he's he's uh, he's had better days. He's, he's a little squirrely. He might be hopped up on the junk or something now. We don't know. But the bomber argues that the bombs have prevented much larger disasters, and he even has the clippings to prove it. So it seems seems like it could be legit. Maybe maybe he's actually telling yeah. The, the whole truth idea is this. that like when a building blew up with a hundred people died in, that was actually going to be you know the source of a much bigger attack. And so by blowing up the building, he stopped the bigger attack. Right, each one of these. Right. Or he blew up a truck that was traveling somewhere, and so the driver died, but all the people that he would have accidentally killed with the truck ended up living. Right. Uh, so, yeah, stuff like that. But Bart doesn't want to hear about it. He points out that the bomber's next attack is going to kill 10,000 people. He says, I will never become you. And the bomber has some thoughts about predestination. Mm-hmm. He says... It's a it's a paradox, but it can't be paradoctored. <laughs> I thought that was a cute little line. And he says, and now you know, Bert holds a gun on him, but the bomber says, "If you shoot me, you'll become me. Try to love me again." So apparently, the bomber knows or seems to know that this road that Bart is on is going to lead him to become this guy who's standing in or sitting yeah, in front and of Bart. Yeah, I, I think now. the other thing that's kind of thread throughout the movie is this whole idea that. If you jump too many times, you'll start undergoing psychosis and stuff. So the fact that his time machine didn't decommission implies that he keeps jumping and Mm. he essentially becomes this insane person who's doing these bombings, right? Yeah, that would would explain... Oh sure, that I hadn't thought of that, but but sure, he'd have to use the machine more to actually go around and, right. and do the bombings. Now that he knows how to where they're going to be and when. So instead of trying to love him again, Barton mm-hmm. shoots him seven times. Then we go back to 1985 or thereabouts, where John is listening to the tape, uh, and we get clips now of all of Jane's faces in order, from the baby to the little girl Jane to the college Jane. You know, so on and so forth, all the way, all the way through the whole majestic variety of Jane, while the tape is playing over it, and the tape comes to the end. It says, uh, "You are the best thing that ever happened to me. I miss you dreadfully." Uh, and we get a look at Ethan Hawke's face, looking uh, kind of unhappy or puzzled or some not very, not very cheerful anyway. And that's the end. (laughs) 
So a couple of things that wouldn't necessarily be obvious from what we said, you know, one is, okay, so his future version of himself said, if you kill me, you're going to become me. And he went ahead and killed him. So as far as we know, he is going to become him. This is going to keep going on, right? The, the fizzle bomber is going to keep doing this stuff. And the other part that's probably not obvious from what we said is that the threads in here with Mr. Robinson are he created this person, right? This person who is his own mother, his own father, <laughs> you know, his own daughter, uh, et cetera. He created that person in order to stop the fizzle bombers, what it seems like originally. But I think what the movie's really saying is he created him to become the fizzle bomber because, as he said, the existence of the fizzle bomber allowed the Time Bureau to be created and made it better. Mm. So Robertson wanted the fizzle bomber. So he was both creating the bomber and the person who would stop the bomber, who is the same person. <laughs> this is going to keep yeah. keep going on. <laughs> yeah, and we do, you know, the 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 bomber seems plausible when he's talking about these these clippings about how he how he changed history, but. Uh, we never have any evidence except for these supposed clippings. Uh, I can't think of any other time in the movie where history gets changed at all. You know, we we end up just continually finding out that this is exactly how the way it always has been. Right. Uh, and nothing's changing. So right. who knows? <laughs> so let's talk about the movie itself. So, you know, uh, it is a independent film that was like a few million dollars so it was pretty low budget mm -hmm. what did you think of you know acting story etc yeah you know the uh, there's a lot that's really well done about it i mean the 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 sets are good the acting's good the uh, i mean like i said there's places where they sort of give the game away or you're you find yourself wondering about something that would be better for the movie's sake if you didn't twig to it so early. <laughs> right. You know, like when uh, when John comes into the bar and looks like a woman. Right. You know. So I mean, overall, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a good effort. But for and I, it did keep me interested throughout. But it did it did tip its hand a few places a little early for my liking. But uh, eh, it was still a. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say overall it was uh, it was probably not the drag somebody down to a couch kind of movie, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, say so you've got to watch this right now. But I mean, it's it's fun. I uh, I enjoyed watching it, and it uh, kept me. You, even the stuff that I pretty much guessed at, you know, I, I didn't uh, I didn't try to puzzle it out in my mind. Uh, so, you know, there was a certain amount of surprise uh, throughout it. Um, and even now in us discussing it, you've pointed out a few things that I did not realize just from watching it one and a half times. So overall, I'd say uh, a good effort, you know, not, not stupendous, but uh, had a lot of good things about it. So, <laughs> well, in terms of worth watching, right? I mean, I basically agree. I think I would say it's, interesting watching um, you know if we look back at the other Rashomon films Rashomon itself and Usual Suspects and the the X-Files episode those are all what I would call worth watching 
this is like mm. it's interesting. It's not bad. You're not going to waste your time, and you may find you know the nature of the whole story interesting and everything. But it's yeah, it's just not up there with the execution. Is not where maybe it could be. So you know, I would put it sort of second tier, worth watching. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, and you know, worth watching after you get through the other stuff that's worth watching. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Now, how about the Rashomon thing? So we, you know, just because, again, we saw in some Google search that this was, you know, listed as a Rashomon-inspired film. What do you think about that? I got to say, I don't see it. I mean, it's a, it's a time travel story, which, uh, you know, Rashomon, you've got the ambiguity between the different witnesses and so on. And this is just pretty much the camera showing us what happened. Now, it's a selective Mm-hmm. view so in that sense it's maybe a little rashomon like you know because in this scene we don't see john's face in this scene we don't see bart's face and this you know so so there's there's some deliberate ambiguity going on but but there is one overarching story that's consistent you know it's uh you know there is one truth that can be Mm-hmm. obtained from watching the movie and um and whatever ambiguity there is isn't from conflicting eyewitness accounts but from uh, deliberate directorial tricks to try and keep you on your right. toes and people in um, the movie lying to each other right but yeah i agree i mean i think the i think a key part of the rashomon thing is multiple witnesses who have different stories and here you have lies and you have ways to interpret the story, but it's not at all that. So I, I, I don't think it, that it was Rashomon inspired. And I think it's kind of a misunderstanding of the Rashomon theme to say that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it got us to watch a movie I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And, you know, it's certainly in, uh, fine on its own. And being a, you know, early Heinlein fan, it's interesting to see how his story was used uh, for this this movie. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i hoping the next movie we watch will be uh, require a lot less note-taking. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of plot. <laughs> this. Well, we shall see. And the next movie, uh, thanks to your suggestion, is going to be Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai with Forrest Whitaker. So let's see. Uh, does that uh, live up to being a Rashomon film? Now many, many years ago, when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had her of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon they two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was my mother because she was my father's wife. To complicate the matter, even though it brought me joy, I soon become the father of the bouncing baby boy. <laughs> this little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother of the winner's grown-up daughter, who of course was my stepmother. <laughs> I'm my own grandpa. Sing with me if you want to. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know, but it really is so. Oh, I'm my own grandpa. Well, for 
them on the run And he became my grandchild Boy, was my daughter's son My wife is now my mother's mother And it makes me blue Because although she is my wife She's my grandmother too Now if my wife, my grandmother Then I'm her grandchild And every time I think of it It jelly drives me wild Strangest case you ever saw As husband of my grandmother And my own grandpa I'm my own grandpa Sound funny, I know But it really is so 